Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I am laughing because we are a little bit behind the eight ball today. No, not we are. I am. And uh, I don't know. I just felt like time could go forever today. And so I haven't shut off all of these these bells and these whistles on the computer. Bada-bing, bada-boong. And so let's just get everything quiet here. And that is that. All right. Hey, guys. The clock is ticking. We are in. We are more than waist deep into Elul, the month of. You know, we keep saying the month of repentance. But I like to think of it as the month of reflection. Repentance, remorse, resolution, only with true, true reflection of where we are, where we've been, where we're hoping to go. The other stuff kind of falls into place. Um, I'm thinking to myself, first of all, let's say good morning, good morning, good evening. Um, Our friends in the States are listening in. That's just great. Um, it's night there, nighttime. I think it's like 9 p.m. in California, but midnight in New York. So really, God bless you, and thank you for getting up or staying up to listen to this show live. South Africa is with us. Good morning, South Africa. I hope it's warming up for you guys a little bit, a little bit. Australia is with us. Boketover, it's Israel. We have Iran listening in. Again, the Islamic Republican Republic of Iran has joined us, and Chile. Very, very beautiful, very excited. Really, call it hokey, it's hands across the waters. It's just beautiful. Thinking, what is your thing? You know, remember you used to have this song uh, back in, I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, it's your thing, gets your thing, gets your thing, do what you want to do, man. So I'm thinking, what is your thing? We all don't have one thing. We all are comprised of a myriad qualities, interests, quirks, fascinations, um, negative character traits, all things that make us so different. Last Shabbos, I think last week's show, I think I was telling everybody that I was getting ready. If the show sounded a little tense last week, I was preparing for having Shabbos guests. Now, it's no secret that both Ronnie and I are of a certain age. Our house is not filled with young children all the time. If so, they come in, say, hi, Grandma, have a cup of hot chocolate, and on the way, quiet house. Two altacacas, two old people, and their dog. Okay, we work hard. We both work multiple jobs. The Sabbath comes. We have our routines. Anybody who is has the uh, has, the children have flown the nest. Whether you're Jew, not Jew, observant Jew, not yet observant Jew, you know the rhythms of your lives. And suddenly, one of my daughters, who has been blessed to have nine children, busy household. Her husband was taking one child away as a special treat for Shabbos. Can she come with the remaining? It was only seven. One boy is in yeshiva. 
The other boy is away with daddy. So it was only mommy and seven children. Can we please come, grandma, to your 90-meter apartment in the heart of Jerusalem and spend the Sabbath? And what does any good mother say? Oh, okay. If I tell you the tension before they were coming, what am I going to cook? Is it going to be a, 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 a child-friendly menu. Um, you know, it'll make me crazy if they throw away all that chicken on the bone and they don't eat it. Um, we have so many antiques, precious books. Are they going to damage it? Where am I going to put them all? I didn't. I was so, so nervous. And my husband, how is he going to deal? These aren't his biological grandchildren. He likes them. They're pleasant enough people. But he has earned his Shabbos with every meal. I was bombarded with, thank you, Grandma. This is so good, Grandma. This is so much fun, Grandma. I walked around my house. It's not hard to walk around my house. You just reach out one arm to the other arm. And I could see that the little boys had snuck into every single corner to explore, inspect, they were curious about everything. They saw where I stored the uh, the suitcases, where we put our toolboxes, because every little curtain was just a little bit, a little bit canached, a little bit bent. Um, and then, what was the ultimate compliment? Once I got past the curiosity, you know what? This is such a grandma house, and I understood what they meant. Because I also had a grandma with a grandma house. And many of us listening of a certain generation remember it was a house that was a little bit threadbare, a little bit warm. It was a house where you felt hugged, rife with something timeless and something mysterious. And then it dawned on me, duh, dawned on me now. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't even have to be accomplished to provide those things that children, all children, regardless of where we are listening in from, they ache for. Children want safety. They want pajamas. They want stories. They want photo albums. They want food. And they want your faith. Fabulous recipe. And I promise you, it's available to everyone. How tired was I from Shabbos? You would have thought that I would have needed to sleep. But this week is the last week before the children are going back to school. I believe that in Israel, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com, um, that most of the children are going back tomorrow, Friday, sort of an orientation day. Some private schools had gone back before. So what did we do this last week? I was exhausted. I'm having some terrible feet and leg problems. Of course, we will spare no one in the weeks and months to come. I spent the day with two of my grandsons, two unique boys who seem to have a, um, an interest in things outside of themselves. And one of them is quite artistically talented, I see, with all of my expertise. And so what did I do? I took them to the Israel Museum, our national museum, the Eretz Israel Museum. 
Previously, they had only been to the children's wing. It was incredible. We were able to discuss through many of the exhibits. We talked about Jewish history and the brachot, the blessings of those individuals who are long gone, who preserved and protected the artifacts and the precious remnants of their own families that one day would be available for us to see. And I must tell you again, there was such an outpouring of gratitude. You know, we passed upon a case of broken pottery shards. They have this kind of a Stone Age exhibit. And there's so many pottery shards throughout Israel. Wherever you go, you see pottery, antique pottery, new pottery, Arab pottery, um, Armenian pottery, pottery, pottery. And we become almost numb to it. And I was able to discuss to them that during the Stone Age, what a pot, a pottery pot that could hold olive oil, precious, hard-pressed olive oil to a woman in charge of feeding a family. If that pot broke, she indeed, it was the equivalent, and I kid you not, of a California wildfire. She was left with nothing until she could acquire the means of getting another pot precious to contain the precious oil that people in dangerous situations would grab their mortar and pestle. We talked about the painstaking life's work of creating a Haggadah, a Passover Haggadah, or a Sefer Torah, or a book of Psalms that in the 1500s would be written by hand. And then I took the boys to look at art. That was after our picnic lunch, after we ate, ate 91 shekels worth of cakes and cookies and water. And we looked at paintings. And I asked them, what is the purpose of art? And we talked about it. Why do we need art? Why is it important? How can a painting, how can an artist talk to us if he's been dead 300 years? Why is he talking to us? How is he talking to us from the painting? I bring all of this up as we get into our Elul show, our Parsha show, our show about faith. And I share with you whether you have a lot or whether you have materially very little, we can give them things or we can give them us. You can, you can give them things. You can give them you. I promise you, there is no doubt as to where the true value lies. I had more fun than all of them. My name's Andrea Simintov. Guess what? I'll see you on the other side. From Israel. Okay. 
Okay, we are back. Andrea Simintov, pull up a chair. Pull up a chair. Okay, pull up a futon. Um, oh, apparently Ireland has joined us this morning on the live show. Really, friends, make sure, share the show. Share the link with your friends. Tell them about Israel News Talk Radio. Really, um, you may not agree with everything that's said on the station, but I absolutely can attest to the heartfelt sincerity of every one of the show presenters here and indeed station management. And you know what? In a world that's so filled with illusion and indeed deceit, it's very nice to find yourself certainly an emotional landing place in this world of cyber talk and cyber chat and cyber yapping, a place that's really so rife with sincerity. For me, myself, it's a ganza, ganza, ganza honor. That means it's a big honor. Okay, the late, great Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs was quoted as saying, I found this quote, and it's really so appropriate for this time of year. Everybody, just hold on a second. Right outside the studio, they are doing crazy building. I told you, this show is nothing except for real. Hold on a moment. Okay. They are totally, I'm telling you, I drove all over the city. I was in Ramat Beit Shemesh for hours this week. And I promise you, there's not a land of this country that is not being built upon, built, constructed. It's madness. Okay. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs talks about faith. And what did he say? Spoke very much to my heart. Very curious about your opinion. The test of faith is whether I can make space for difference. Can I recognize God's image in someone who is not in my image, whose language, faith, ideals are different than mine? If I cannot, I have made God in my image instead of allowing him to remake me in his. Take a moment. We talk about how we are created in God's image. And that has been discussed ad nauseum. Does it mean that God saw me with my new French manicure and uh, with black curly hair and a little bit chubby and um, blue eyes, whatever it is, or the image of my soul as it could be better and better and more perfect because each one of us has that whisper, that blow, that tad of God in us. Not godliness, God. So, of course, we're created in his image. Loving a child that came from you is very different than loving a child that came from someone else. We can appreciate a child, our niece, our nephew, our neighbor's child. We can appreciate them. We even can love them and find that special charm. But there's something so relatable about that child for those of us who have been blessed. Okay. Um, We want to keep the show upbeat because I'm upbeat because we are in Elul. But you know... 
over and over, I get mail, I have relatives, high school friends who sit and say, if only Andrea, Israel would take another step to conduct themselves, to make peace with those who would drive us into the sea. If we only could reach out and maybe the Arabs will like us more if, and we know that Jewish personality, like me, like me, what can I give you? What can I do? What can I be? How can I remold myself? How can I make myself? We're going to touch more upon this in the Devar Torah section, of course. And then I think to myself, this week, we're not here to discuss the details because there is a lot to be said about it. But apparently this past week, Libyan foreign minister, Najila Magush, Najila Magush, she had a meeting with foreign minister Eli Cohen. Israel's foreign minister. Yes, Ellie Cohn, those of you who follow the news, has been raked over the coals for this, me- for this meeting. Was it sanctioned? Wasn't it sanctioned? Who sanctioned it? Um, did he discuss things that shouldn't have been? You know what? It is so incredibly Jewish, the discussion about what happened with Ellie Cohn, because it was discussed. It was out there. It has been parsed. Because in our democratic, yes, indeed, democratic way of conducting life here in Israel, we talk about it. Unlike what happened to Minister Magush of Libya. Fired. Dismissed. And where is she? In hiding. All because whether a well-guided, well-meaning, or foolishly decided opportunity to reach out beyond our seemingly ironclad enemy status, somebody wanted to make a difference or see if there was anything worth talking about. That's what talking about something gets you in Libya. And then we're followed. We're followed by Yosef Haddad. Yosef Haddad, he's an Arab, uh, he's an Arab Israeli activist. We don't have too many of these guys. We don't have many of these two guys who are living there every day is to try to create some kind of pro-Israel dialogue with the Arab world. And what happened? He was assaulted in the UAE, assaulted, um, imprisoned for a short period of time. Again, where is the celebration of difference and finding that common ground. It's really heartbreaking for those of you who sit and say to me day and night and night and day, really, what more can you do? We're working on it. And then last night, I don't even remember, I don't have the article in front of me, uh, which... I don't want to say which Arab country it was, but it was an it there was a weightlifting championship. Only I didn't take the notes in front of me, so I apologize because I'm usually much more a weight an international weightlifting heavyweight champion, and one of the Arab medal winners stood for a photograph, camaraderie and sportsmanship, shook the hand of his Israeli co-competitor. He's been fired. His career 
has been ended, severed. To weep, oh, to weep, it is so sad. That is why we will keep trying, we will keep doing, we will be Israeli at the end of the day, on our worst day and our best day. But it's a place where conversation still takes place. Okay, last week we talked about, I told you I had come across this lovely, lovely, um, this lovely teacher's comment, and it said it was a Me Too movement. If we remember together, uh, a teacher had started a Me Too movement in the school where was one kid would stand up and say, I like bicycle riding, I like peanut butter sandwiches, I like this, and anybody else who liked it would stand up in the classroom and say, Me Too. And then somebody else would get up and Me Too. And their Me Too movement connected the children on the things that united them. Maybe we need that in the Middle East. A bigger Me Too. What else do you like? I know certainly our listenership, that we have people listening in from Egypt and from Jordan and from Iran, listening in together to our voices in the West and our voices in Israel. We're also creating a lovely, together, Me Too movement. Well, here is another Let's Celebrate Teachers moment. Um, was posted on a few walls this week, and I loved it. It's a note that says, Handle with Care. And a teacher writes to all of the families in her classroom, and I know about this kind of thing from personal experience, sadly. And this teacher, who is anonymous, sends a note to the parents, and it says, If your family is experiencing difficulties at home, I would like to provide additional support at school. I understand that you are not always able to share details, and that's okay. If your child is coming to school after a difficult night, morning, or weekend, please text me, handle with care. Nothing else will be said or asked. This will let me know that your child may need extra time, patience, or help during the day. My goodness, handle with care. I think that we ourselves should have buttons and go out in public on those days. Handle with care. You know, to go back to the beginning where I was talking about what we can give, we're going to our break soon, what we can give others, just a thought. You know, in a 100 years, every one of us listening, most of us, will be gone, will be buried, our relatives will be gone, our homes, that we did we paint the wall this color or that color, our homes will be inhabited most likely by strangers. Our possessions, they won't care. Maybe one generation, two generations. This is the time when we have to share our jokes, our memories, our photos, who we are, and what we could give. These are the moments, and you know, when a child will sit across in years to come, in a hundred years, and say, I had a relative who? We will have left our legacy. Andrea Simintov, see you on the other side. Great talk from Israel.
we're back. Woo who we are back. Okay. Uh, let's see. So this week's partial, we, you know, we're all, I take all these notes, my goodness. Um, so, okay. So this week's Parsha, now remember, the Torah portion this week, and we are winding it down, aren't we? Ki Tavo, and you know, there is so much description of Jewish history that appears in just this week's Torah portion. Crazy. Almost 800 years ago, the Ramban stated how wonderful and chilling the prophecies of Moshe were in their precise accuracy and clarity of vision. The description of the Jewish future that we encounter here in our today life is really frightening. Indeed, I don't know about you, but I sometimes get very depressed about it. I mean, they told us about the oncoming Rage, persecution, genocide, abject anti-Semitism wherever we go. Rabbi Beryl Wine, he quoted a rather cynical professor of his uh, when he was in um, yeshiva, who said to him that Jewish history is books and blood. Now, Rabbi Wine points out that this is a very big oversimplification, but indeed it does contain a kernel of truth, doesn't it? The largest element that contributed to the abandonment of Jewish practice, Jewish observance, even Judaism itself in the West and later Eastern Europe. I mean, Eastern Europe, isn't that the fiddler, fiddler on the roof of our histories? In the 18th and 19th centuries, was that unremitting, ceaseless persecution by not just raging anti-Semitism, just society in general. Put very simply, Jews just could no longer stand um, the burden of the constant, we say in Hebrew, we have a wonderful word, it's tochacha, the the admonition um, constant scolding, constant belittling, the grinding poverty and violent bigotry, which really painted the picture of European Jewry. You know, um, many of us want to think and want to imagine that just every Jew in Europe, up until they came to the Golden of Medina, the, 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 the streets of America that was supposedly paved with gold. Everybody was religious. Everybody looked like Tevye the Milkman. But it wasn't true. The running away and the shaking off the, the, the cloak, the burdensome cloak of the weight of being Jewish was being shed all over. They opted out. The hope was they would escape that prediction that declared the fate of the Jewish people. And of course, the irony of all of this was that the German decimation of the Jews during the Holocaust was not based on religion, but it was always based on race and ancestry. The Jews who converted to Christianity, they also found themselves standing on the railroad platform at Auschwitz. Okay? hunted down by their history. 
But when we read this Parsha, this Torah portion very carefully, it can allow us to um, kind of glean a more hopeful view of our future. Because in fact, and anybody, any Jew listening in now sees, we've been guaranteed a survival. Nazis notwithstanding. It doesn't mean that we will necessarily, as individuals, remain. But as a people, no doubt, in Safek. As a people, as a nation, fact is, we are indestructible. We are eternal. And please, God, we will not be forsaken in the big picture. We will remain but not remain just to exist, just to be, just to take up precious real estate on the planet. We will return to treasure Hashem, to treasure the Torah, to treasure our faith, and to treasure the halacha, the practicing of Jewish law. You know, there's a loving, a loving reconciliation between God and Israel. And this is predicted from all of the prophets, even when we're distant from God, even when we pull ourselves back. Yeah, the wait is sometimes frustrating, and especially in our immediate, our now, now, now world. Where, where is the Messiah? When will you make it good? When will the enemies of Israel back off? The outcome faith-based, is certain. This is the message. You know, it's a paraphrase of Rabbi Akiva. He saw with his own eyes the ruins of the temple strewn on the ground before his eyes. He saw the foxes running over the stones in the raised rubble of our holiest edifice. And he left. And he said, if the terrible predictions have proven to be so accurate in detail and in form, rest assured, the prophecies of comfort and triumph are also true, even as to their most minute detail. This faith of Israel, my friends, has sustained us through our long night of exile. Let it continue to sustain us, even in the midst of our ongoing travails. That is my little Rabbi Wine section. My gosh, Rabbi Beryl Wine. Read, look, grow, appreciate. Okay, now... In this week's Parsha, we got to get to Elul stuff. I'm watching the clock here. In this week's Parsha, again, when we look at it logically, we talk about, they talk about the appearance of the first fruits. And what happens when the first fruits appear after all of the reaping, all of the plowing, all of the planting, all of the preparation of the land? Unrestrained joy gratitude, partying, such thanksgiving. After all, 
we come from an agricultural society. That society of the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple, was absolutely an agricultural society where the ripening of the fruits and crops was expected. It was a given. Something that was taken for granted. The sun rises day in and day out, does it not? The wonderment of the blooming of the first fruits should have been dulled. Ho-hum, yawn once again. But instead, we find an eagerness, an exhilaration, a boundless joy in celebrating Hashem's bounty. Now, in contrast, and I think I've spoken about this before, We've witnessed a phenomenon, certainly in modern-day Jewry, of those who have been what we call from from birth, religious since born. They were born into it. They didn't choose it. Their family was religious. I'm religious. What do you expect? But then there's another group of people. We call them Baltashuvas. Those who, it really is somebody who's returning to religious practice. These people, sometimes, to those who were born into religious life, the BTs, those who have discovered Torah Judaism, they can be a little bit, a little bit overwhelming. Their enthusiasm is sometimes a little bit much. We have a lot to learn from them. They're excited. They're vibrant. The commandments they observe are not out of habit. They're observed out of joy, out of comparing it to perhaps an emptiness of their prior existence. They observe the Torah with indeed a joyous reverence and awe. The the sun rising and the sun setting is nothing to be ignored. This is the lesson. The lesson that the Bikorim, the first fruits, is here to teach us. The Torah should always be new in our eyes so that everything we do, we fulfill with eagerness, desire. My gosh, every single year, the pomp and ceremony connected with the bringing of the first fruits, it served a purpose. It wasn't just carnival. It was to remind us that all of the beauty in the world should never be taken for granted. Indeed, should be seen, should be noticed, should be expressed. The truth of newness, God gives us every, not just every season, not just every year, but every day, an awareness of the freshness of life. The farmer who brings his fruits has to declare to the Kohen, I am affirming to God that I have come to the land God swore to our fathers to give us. He doesn't yawn when he says it. He feels it. In saying I, and not my forefathers, We are affirming, again, that we cannot take God and the Torah for granted as something merely bequeathed to us. Yeah, this is the consciousness 
that should always spring vivid within us, especially at this time of year. We will be entering our synagogues. We will be opening up our machzorim, our prayer books, our Rosh Hashanah prayer books. It's not yon yon, how many pages left until we go home to eat. Bikorim teaches us that we should not allow ourselves to be dulled by custom, tradition, or habit. We have to receive with gladness every day and wonder the lessons that this season in particular offers us after the lazy, hazy summer, that massive void where really nothing big and holiday-ish is happening. Oh, so much has been happening. We're being allowed to harvest our own awareness of God and his Torah to blossom and ripen within every one of us. You know, um, there are two kinds of repentance, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more coming up. Hmm. There's two kinds of repentance. Teshuva. These are the days of Teshuva. Okay? There's Teshuva from fear. Oh my gosh, the wrath of God is going to come down on me. And Teshuva from love. Repentance from fear and punishment it has its place. Better to repent than not repent. But the fact is it does not stand as high as the repentance from love, love for God. A person improves themselves, they purify themselves through a repentance that's sparked by love because this is what it takes to transform sin to merit. But that evil inclination within each of us, we call it the Yetzar Hara, it tries to prevent a person from achieving this kind of repentance. A, f- a person must first repent from fear before he can hope to strive for the repentance through love, since the Yetzahara is not as um, not as adamant, not as strong in, a pro- in opposing that first kind of teshuva. Indeed, that evil inclination loves fear, loves terror, loves trepidation. Nice parable. When a treasure is hidden in a courtyard... The only way to get to that treasure, you don't start digging. You have to first enter the courtyard. Repentance stemming from love is exactly like that priceless treasure, which can only be obtained by first entering the courtyard, crossing over the threshold of fear of punishment. Ah, what does entering the courtyard mean? Only you can answer that. Does it mean Sabbath observant? Does it mean watching what we put in our mouths? Does it mean watching what's coming out of our mouths? One who remains outside that courtyard, however, will never have that slightest chance of reaching the treasure. We have to learn from from this parable, the the parable, the (laughs) I can't even say it. Um, parable, we have to perceive 
by entering the courtyard. The next step, digging it up, much easier. And the chances to win the treasure, far, far greater. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Elul. And remember, the Parsha, the Torah portion, absolutely overlaps, overlaps. We are being given a very unique opportunity in time. And remember again, I've told you before, even the letters of the word Elul represent Ani, Lidodi, Vidodi, Li. It's a declaration of love. It's an engagement. God is saying, Ani, Lidodi, Vidodi, Li. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Will you marry me? You know, time is a very tricky thing. Rebison Heller brings down, really, I always laugh when I read her notes on the, you know, she says, you can always get it, you can pretty much get an accurate answer if you say to somebody, what time is it? But when you reverse the order and you say, what is time? Finding that answer is going to be a little bit more complex because what's the physical definition of time? An order, an ordered and measurable progression of change. Our world is in constant motion, rotations, revolutions, change. The Ramkal explains how day and night and the various times of day always have a kind of spiritual and halachic avenues through which we can be in touch with the energy that God gave these particular times. In the early Kabbalistic sources, there's a talk Um, about which specific organ is the one that is in tune with the spiritual message and energy of each month. Elul, this month? I didn't know this. Is the month of the ear. You know that little thing laying on the side of your head that we adorn with little gold studs? You can hear Hashem in Elul. And when you do, your relationship to him is far more honest than if you tune out or, let's just say, adjust the messages to fit our assumptions. How many times are we ashamed to say we can't hear? We can't hear what's being said. This is the picture. You're at a wedding. The decibel level Crazy. By the way, have you ever seen people bring babies to weddings? Madness. I think now they create earphones, uh, ear earplugs for babies. But anyway, the music certainly at certain Jewish weddings is off the charts, blaring. And you have a good friend. Somebody comes over, and you haven't seen them in a while, and they're so excited to see you. And you really, you're trying to read their lips. They're shouting something. There's hugs. So much to head nodding, smiling, fingers in the air. But you really can't hear them. You just nod a little bit, and suddenly you run into them. A couple of days later, you're at the shuk, and you run into them. And your friend says, what happened? We all expected you. You said you were coming. Oh, you put the puzzle together. You were too embarrassed at that wedding to tell her you couldn't hear a word she was saying because all you heard was that background music. We tend to do this very frequently, except the results are more profound. 
in last week's parsha, Kitetsa, we had the story of the uh, rebellious son who eats a great deal of semi-cooked meat. He gets drunk after a huge amount of wine. He steals and more. The introductory verse tells you the underlying story. He didn't listen to the voice of his father or mother. As someone who has spent a lot of time this week with her grandchildren, I can tell you that very often children don't really obey. They're not listening. Not even hearing, you know, but not even hearing their parents. That's another story entirely. Ignoring is one thing. This rebellious son was deaf to anything that did not bring him immediate gratification and hostile to anyone who stopped the music. The Or HaChayim says that there are two guards that stand in front of the gates of your heart. What is the job of these gates, of these guards? Their job is to keep the mind's words from reaching our emotions, separating them. You want to hear a song of fantasy that tells you that if you have what you want, that you're materially satisfied, your life is going to be a dream. No, you have to block out that voice of awareness of your inner ability to see the truth, the part that you, the part of you that hears your soul speaking out God's messages. That's the job of that guard. Fear, a powerful motivator. The more we learn to identify with our spiritual selves, that self, that like God is a giver. We've got it. We've got it in us. But Selim Elohim, we're, in, we're created in his image. The less afraid we are of losing something that's material. The Maharal points out that all of chesed, giving, generosity, giving of ourselves, it's a loser's game. You either lose time, you lose money, you lose emotional energy. Is that where the story ends? Of course not. It's a winner's game. We get eternity. We get bonding. We get love. And most of all, we develop an ability to have an incredible, unbreakable bond with our creator. But if you're a materialist, that's not convenient. We want to keep our ears closed. Rebetzin Heller brings down a true story. I found this mind-blowing, very interesting, and I'm curious to know what you think. Um, a Rav in Bnei Brak, Rav Toib, we'll call him, okay? Oh, his real name is Rav Toib. But anyway, he was asked a very interesting question. This question is about an event that happened. A man comes to him. I think this man was about uh, in his 50s. He comes to Rav Toib and he says, you know, when I was in the fifth grade, um, I was really a very gifted student. I was a very fantastic Talmud Torah, okay, a student of Torah. But I had to leave because of something that happened. A boy came to school with an envelope full of cash. His mother sent him on an after-school errand to pay the electric company. And this little boy showed the money off to his friends. And soon it was the hottest topic in the, in the, in the cheder, the school. 
Everybody said, "Oh, he's got so much money!" And he put his he put it in his coat pocket in recess, and he headed into the yard. But when he came back, and he went to his coat, which he obviously had left in the classroom, the money was gone. Obviously, the boy was extremely distraught. The Rebbe locked the door, had all of us face the wall, goes on this man who's visiting Rabbi Toib, and he said, so we couldn't see who would be caught. He felt everyone's pockets, but the money wasn't there. He had no choice. He had us put our backpacks and lunch bags on the table. The money was found in my backpack, even though I didn't take it. The Rebbe was brilliant. He told the boys that someone put it in there to protect himself, just like Yosef had his servants hide. Remember the story of Joseph? Had him hide the, the goblet in Benjamin's pack. But the Benjamin strategy didn't work. From then on, Rabbi, I was David the Ganov, David the thief. It stuck like glue. I left school at the end of the year. But I never got over those months of humiliation. Now, 40 years later, Rabbi, I get a call. The man on the phone told me that he was calling to ask me for forgiveness. I asked him, why are you making this call? And he told me he was the boy that stole the money and put it in my book bag. I told him, 40 Yom Kippers have come and God and come and gone. What made you wake up now? I'll tell you the truth, he said. I am working for a firm, and I have been accused of embezzling money. I didn't do it, but I know that if I can't prove my innocence, my career is over. I am not doing that well financially anyway. This would destroy me. Clearly, he was asking for this fellow's forgiveness. The man visiting Rabbi Toib and asking his shayla, asking his question, goes on. I told him I would think about it, Rab Toib, and this brings me to you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's sincerely sorry for what he did or he's just afraid. Rabbi Toib thought about it and said, you know what? Ask him for 50,000 shekels in return for forgiveness, and see what he does. But after he made the suggestion, Rabbi Toib wasn't so sure that he had done the right thing. So he then approached one of, um, one of Rabbi Chaim's grandsons, and he, asked him, and he asked him to bring the question and the idea of repayment to his grandfather. And here was the reply. He could ask for the money and forgive him, but he could also not make any demands. And even if the other man's sincerity is not definite, he will end up like Rab Yossi in the, in the Talmud. Who is Rab Yossi? He was the one who said that his wish is to have his place in the Garden of Eden, Eden to be among those who suffered humiliation and accepted it without answering back. May we all be worthy of being like Rav Yossi and hear what is deep, real, and meaningful. Let Elul be the month of mercy and forgiveness. Let us be ready to really hear the sound of the shofar. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>